0: Romans chapter 4 Romans chapter 4 And as we look at God's Word together, we want everybody to be able to follow along So Len and Jean have some Bibles if you need one get their attention And they'll get a copy of the scriptures to you as we look at Romans chapter 4 together in a bit Today is the fourth of four messages in a brief series we've been doing on the subject of heaven Beginning next week, and for the next four Sundays, we're going to hear from the fellows who are involved in our pastors in training program. So next Sunday, we'll be treated to the ministry of Brother Zach Hamilton. Two weeks from today, Brother Matt Owen. In three weeks, we'll hear from Larry Castle. And then on August the 16th, from Brother John Veldus. So today we conclude Heaven, uh, the series on Heaven. And then the next four weeks, our pastors in training men will be speaking. On August 23rd, We'll begin a series in the New Testament book of Hebrews, but we will be looking at the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, very much during that series because the book of Hebrews makes many allusions to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and applying those truths and what they predicted and pointed to to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Today we conclude our series then on heaven. And in the three messages so far we've seen, three weeks ago, that our future home in heaven should be motivation to all of us for service in the here and now, in the present. Two weeks ago, we saw a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. And last week, we looked at what the Bible says regarding what we will be like in heaven and the kinds of things we will be doing there. These messages, like all of our sessions, are on our website. So if you've missed any of them and you want to see what we've Uh, hear what we've discussed, you'll be able to get them through that means. Today in our final message on heaven, we're going to be looking at what's required to get there. What does God require for any person to enter his heaven? Now, as we do, I'm going to be showing you on the screen a number of quotations from some centuries-old documents and from some more recent documents as well, all relating to diametrically opposed views of how it is that a person can be received into God's heaven. Many of you are familiar with what's called in history the Protestant Reformation that began in the year 1517 when Martin Luther nailed 95 grievances, 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. To begin a process that went on for many decades, culminating in a split within the church. And you had done then and have Protestants, those who protest, and, and Catholics. And there have been, in the centuries since, some attempts to bring Catholics and Protestants, sometimes called evangelicals, together. And in fact, uh, in 1940, 1994, just 15 years ago, there was an attempt to do that very thing, to reconcile these very profound differences. Now, I tell you that because I'm going to be showing you some of that. But also, if you happen to be a Roman Catholic friend here today, I want you to know from the outset, it is not and is never my intention to bash individual people. But we must speak truth where there are stark differences, particularly differences that relate to the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is what it is that is required for one to go to heaven. And so my subject requires that we be clear. And that as a shepherd of a flock, that our flock, our congregation, be clear about what the terms of the gospel are and what they are not. And so we're going to be looking at some of those differences as part of our presentation this morning. In the 1994 document that I mentioned, that was titled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, one of the lines and the most famous line in the document said this, we affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. You read that and you may at first blush say hallelujah. That means our Roman Catholic friends have seen the light. And all of the fuss of the Protestant Reformation that started in 1517 is now over because we affirm together we're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. And indeed, if you were to read the entire document, you would find that it's a very eloquent and very misleading document. You see, friends, the Bible does not merely teach. And we do not merely believe that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Rather, let me show you a more accurate statement of what the Bible teaches, what we believe, and what Roman Catholicism still denies. The truth is, we are justified by grace alone. Through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And the addition of that one word makes all the difference in the world. It is the difference between a true and a false gospel. As to whether or not you believe we have a relationship with God, that's the fancy word justified, that we can have a relationship with God and be accepted before him By any other means than grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. I mentioned Martin Luther and the Reformation of the 16th century. That Reformation took place because the dominant church of that day had corrupted the simple gospel of salvation which the Bible teaches is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And that corruption had occurred by adding requirements that involve our own works, what we do before God to make ourselves acceptable before him. And so men of God who studied the Bible, men like Martin Luther, came to the conclusion that the Bible does not teach grace plus or faith plus. Or Christ plus anything. But rather it teaches grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And so the watchwords of this movement called the Reformation were Latin phrases that some of you have heard. Sola gratia, grace alone. And sola fide, faith alone. And sola Christus, Christ alone. And sola means Alone, And it's not too much to say that the entire Protestant Reformation was over one extremely, extremely important word. Alone. And so if a document that purports to bring evangelicals and Catholics together leaves that out, they've left out the heart of the gospel and the heart of the issue. And the authority for believing that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, came not from the church, not from the church magisterium, not from church tradition, not from any particular church. The authority upon which we stand in the pure gospel of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, comes from Holy Scripture, the Bible, God's Word. And that's why the reformers would also say we believe and place our trust in the authority of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. A very, very important issue indeed. In fact, the Bible warns. When Paul wrote to the Galatian, the churches in Galatia, he said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ And you are turning to a different gospel. Which is, the Bible says, really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's in your Bible. People were, people have been, and people are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes on to warn the Galatian churches, even if we, notice he includes himself, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Now the document that I mentioned earlier, Evangelicals, Catholics, Together 1994, the document was signed by evangelicals that some of you would know. Among them, Pat Robertson, Charles Colson, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Now, if you're sitting there saying, you know, preacher, I don't think you should mention names when you preach. I just want to disabuse you of that notion that you never mention names. I want to disabuse you of that notion scripturally, okay? Because here's what Paul wrote to his son in the faith, a young pastor, Timothy. Timothy, my son, fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. And among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Not only did he mention names, their names have been mentioned for about 2,000 years now in the pages of Scripture. Paul wrote again to Timothy, the words of false teachers will spread like gangrene. Among them are, Hymenaeus gets double billing. Here's Hymenaeus again and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. It is simply false and unbiblical to say that we never name names. Now, I certainly agree you never name names frivolously, or unfairly, to be sure. If you name them, you better have the goods. But all of those men, and all of the others who signed that document, all of them knew or should have known that Roman Catholicism has always denied that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. They have always believed that it is by faith, And grace and Christ, just plus, not alone. And so here is what Roman Catholicism has said about this most important issue. Just to make sure you all know that I have the goods, and I don't mention names unfairly, I'm quoting directly from Roman Catholic documents here. This is from the Council of Trent in response to Martin Luther and the other reformers. In the 16th century, and here's what they say, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain this grace of justification, let him be anathema. They go on to say, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. They go on. If anyone says that the sacraments are not necessary for salvation and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Finally, they say, if anyone says that men are justified either by the soul, notice, alone, imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins or even that the grace whereby we're justified is just the favor of God upon us, let him be anathema. Now, anathema means eternally condemned, accursed. And I stand before you telling you that I believe every one of the things that have been condemned there. And they are still condemned officially to this very day. Friends, the heart of the gospel and how, what is required for one to enter God's heaven is at stake in these issues. I want us to be reminded and I want us to see today the take home truth that I have for you in the outline that was inserted in your program. We can enter heaven only, solely, sola, only because of what Jesus has done, not never because of what we do we need to understand first that when the christian the one who has come to jesus by faith believing not working believing what jesus has worked the the soul of that christian goes to heaven when he or she dies that means that there is no such teaching in the bible as Soul sleep. Do you all know what I mean by that? Soul sleep. That the soul, when the Christian dies, does not go to heaven, but rather the soul is in repose, in rest. The soul sleeps. The most uh, well-known proponents of the notion of soul sleep are our Seventh-day Adventist friends. And they teach that the soul sleeps, does not go to be in the presence of the Lord but rather awaits the future resurrection. And they say that because it is the case that often in the Bible, the word sleep is used as a synonym for death. But what sleeps is not the soul, but the body. It's the body that's at rest. The soul goes to be with the Lord. And so you have passages like Matthew 27 which refer to after Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of some Old Testament saints, those who had died before the time of Jesus as believers. And here's what it says in Matthew 27. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's not the soul that was sleeping. It's the the body that the Bible speaks of as sleeping. And that's why Scripture says things like, as we saw a few weeks ago, To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And Paul said in Philippians 1, I desire to depart this body and be with Christ. We have a glimpse in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, of those who have gone on before us. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 14. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labor. And in chapter 14 of Revelation, these are not just, these are not souls that are resting. It's the bodies that are resting because these souls, these spirits are very active. If you read verses 1 through 4, they are singing and they're rejoicing and they're serving God as well. That's why the second London Baptist confession of 1689. You were probably just reading that the other day a marvelous a marvelous marvelous statement of our faith particularly as it relates to how we are justified how we have a relationship with god second london baptist confession here's what it says the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption but their souls which neither die nor sleep have an immortal subsistence immediately return to god who gave them the souls of the righteous being made perfect in holiness and received into paradise where they are with Christ. And behold, the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the soul of the Christian goes to heaven. His body awaits a reunification with his immaterial portion at the time of the resurrection when our Lord returns. And those who are alive are raptured. So the soul of the Christian goes to heaven, and not only goes to heaven, goes directly to heaven. That's why I've titled this message, Go to Heaven. Go directly to heaven. Do not go to purgatory. Or any place in between. The soul of the Christian goes to heaven, and the soul of the Christian goes directly to heaven. Now, I want to spend some time to tell you why it is that some have developed a notion of a stopping place on the way to heaven rather than the soul going directly to heaven. And it relates to this issue of the purity of the gospel that I introduced at the beginning. You see, God has set an absolutely perfect standard for any who would enter into his heaven. His standard is absolute perfection. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus was not simply using hyperbole. He is saying God's standard is absolute moral perfection. The question then arises: Who can possibly go to heaven? And we see the same thing illustrated in Jesus' encounter in Luke chapter nineteen, or excuse me, Matthew nineteen, with one called the rich young ruler. Some of you remember that encounter. And this young man comes to Jesus and says to him, "Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life?" He's asking the question that we're trying to answer today: How do you get to heaven? And he calls him good. And Jesus' response is kind of curious. Jesus doesn't say, pray this prayer after me at first. Jesus says, first, you need to know that you're not good. And you're not good enough. And so he responds to this young man by saying, why do you call me good? There is none who is good except for God. Jesus is suggesting, if you're not God, you're not good, and thus you're not good enough. Be perfect As your father in heaven is perfect, Jesus is again creating this impossibly high standard. And the young man says, but I've kept all of the commandments all of my life. And Jesus says, good, one thing you lack. And he subtly points to this man's covetousness, a violation of the 10th commandment. He says, go and sell all you have and come and follow me. Well, the disciples, Jesus' first followers, are hearing this. And they're amazed because apparently they know this guy. They know that this guy is an upright guy. He's one of the most religious guys I know. He fastidiously keeps all of the rules, crosses the T's, dots the I's, and Jesus is saying to this man, you're not good enough. And so they ask Jesus, well, then how is it that anybody can get into heaven? And Jesus says this famously to them. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the man went away. Jesus has maintained this absolute standard of perfection. It must be met. And the question then becomes, how can I be perfect? In order to enter God's heaven. And one way to do that is to have a second stop. After this life. You know that you're not there now. You doubt very much that you're going to be when you get to the end of the journey. And so there's a second chance to purify. To purge. And thus the word purgatory. It's a purging. A cleansing. To give one the perfection that God requires in order to get to heaven. But there are a few problems with it, not the least of which the Bible does not teach it anywhere, anyhow, nada, know-how, nowhere. You might do a search of that. If your kids are giving you a hard time and you want to keep them busy, have them do a search of that. It will keep them busy for the rest of their lives because it ain't there. But it's based upon a notion that says, I've got to be perfect. That's true. And Jesus and Jesus does not make me perfect. And because Jesus does not make me fully perfect, there has to be another way. And so Roman Catholicism teaches this about purgatory. That all who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification. So as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, the church gives the name purgatory to this final purification. Every sin entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death, in the state called purgatory. So suffice it to say that if that is the case, if there is not something, yea, someone, this side of heaven, this side of death, who purifies you completely, who makes you acceptable before God, then suffice it to say that you will be in that place needing to be purified because you will leave this life impure in and of yourself. So what do you do? Well, you're in purgatory. Now what happens? What do souls in purgatory do to get out? Well, it's not what the souls in purgatory do. It's what those who are alive do for those souls in purgatory. And Perhaps you've always wondered, you know, we don't light as many candles. We don't buy as many cards. We don't buy any cards, as a matter of fact. But here's one of the reasons. We're not trying to get anybody out by what we do. Because we don't believe there's anybody in. But that's what purgatory is. And then there's a system called indulgences. Indulgencia, Latin word, means a Permit. And it gives one a permit to have a portion of their sins purified when in purgatory. Indulgences can be obtained in a number of ways. Lighting candles, saying prayers, good works of the saints. Lest you think I make that up. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, the official Catechism of the Catholic Church, says an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, an indulgence is obtained through the church who intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints. Notice that last phrase, the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints. The idea is that there is a sort of treasure box, a treasury that obtained, <clears throat> that contains the good works not only of Christ but of the saints that have accrued throughout the centuries and continue to accrue and withdrawals can be made from the treasury of merit, the treasury of the church, through the auspices of the church, by individuals in this life on behalf of those who are in purgatory. What is the treasury of the church? It's of infinite value. It can never be exhausted. It includes, in addition to the infinite merit of Christ, the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all of the saints. Through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. Now, friends, this is based entirely upon an unbiblical notion that the Christian is not completely purified before God through Jesus Christ alone. And because it doesn't happen through Jesus alone, that you can have the perfection that is required to go to heaven, then there has to be some other means by which that is obtained a means the Bible teaches and refers to in no way whatsoever. The soul of the Christian goes to heaven. The soul of the Christian goes directly to heaven, and here's why the soul of the Christian goes directly to heaven. It's point three in your outline. It is because of the life and the death of Jesus. I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 4 when we begin. Romans chapter 4. I want us to be reminded as to what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 4 about the work of Jesus and what he has done in order to secure our salvation. Verse 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. Now notice this. His faith is credited as righteousness. His faith, not his works, not what he does, not what he earns, not what he merits, but what he believes. That's what the word faith is. His faith is counted, credited The King James says, and it's a good term, imputed to him as righteousness. And here's why it's a good term. Because that word translated in your NIV, credited, in the King James, imputed, is an accounting term. And God, the divine accountant, sees that we have a debt on our ledger that we absolutely cannot pay. But he erases that sin debt. When the life and death of Jesus Christ is applied to the individual, imputed, counted, credited to them. Not when they do something, but when they believe something. His faith is credited as righteousness. And what happens then to the man or woman who does that? who has applied to their account the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty in full for our sin, what happens to that man or woman? Verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You don't need a holding place if you've come to Jesus. You don't need another shot at it. You don't need someone else doing work for you if you've come to Jesus. It wasn't your work to begin with. It's not their work now. It was and is and always will be Jesus' work on your behalf. And we believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And now I can be perfect before God. Not because of me, certainly, but because of Jesus. The Bible teaches this throughout, does it not? Romans chapter 4. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, nailing them to the cross. Hebrews chapter 10. How can I be holy? How can I be right before God? How can I stand before God with the perfection that's necessary to enter his heaven? We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Bible says God God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I then in Jesus have a righteousness that is not my own. A righteousness that's outside of me. A righteousness that is given, imputed, credited, counted to me. When I come to Jesus believing who he is and what he's done. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. Famously in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And it is not by works, so that no one can stand before God and say, This is what I've done. So no one can boast. Let him who boasts, the Bible says, boast in the Lord. I have for you at the top of your outline Romans chapter 4, but I also have Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And why? Well, because you may remember in Luke chapter 23 that Jesus is on the cross and Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thieves one of the thieves mocks Jesus, has no reverence for the Lord of glory. But another of those thieves hanging on the cross understands there's something different about this man, something different about who he is, something different about what he's able to do. And he acknowledges that belief, that faith, very simply hanging there next to Jesus on the cross verse 41 of Luke 23, this man says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Notice he understands something about this guy. He has no sin of his own. And then he said, Jesus, verse 42, remember me. When you come in your kingdom, you said you're coming and I believe. That you're who you said you are. I believe that it is your world. It is your kingdom. That you are going to come. You are going to consummate all things. When you do that. Not if you do that. When you do that. Remember me. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will go to purgatory. I say that seriously. No, he does, right? Today you will go to purify yourself. This day, today, you will be with me in paradise. If there was ever anybody who needed to purify himself, it's that guy. And Jesus says there is no such place. There's heaven and there's hell. And today you're going to be with me in my heaven. Not because of you, but because of me. Because you have placed your faith and your trust in me. Friends, that's the good news. That's why we call it the gospel. When I quoted for you earlier, forgive the grammar, it ain't good news. If you depend upon your goodness to get you close to the finish line, you will still have an infinite way to go. If you depend upon the goodness of other people to get you across that finish line, you will never get there. Purgatory is a myth. It is a lie. And it perverts the gospel. Because it is based upon a false notion of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Now, there are two groups of people here. There are people who have received what Jesus Christ has done for them in his life and in his death on the cross. You believe that good news. Thanks be to God. But perhaps you're soft on this idea that there are false gospels out there. I hope that you've been disabused of that notion in our short time. Friends, there are people still teaching. It's what you do, not what jesus just what Jesus did. There are people still teaching, and not just Roman Catholics, still teaching faith plus grace plus Christ plus. And anyone who teaches that is teaching another gospel. So Christian friend, we need to be vigilant in our guarding of the purity and the simplicity and the blessedness of the good news of Jesus. And you may say, I've got loved ones, you know, but, you know, they're going to heaven. If they're trusting in themselves, if they're trusting in their church, if they're trusting in what they do, then they're denying the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. No one will go to heaven outside of throwing themselves at Jesus and Jesus alone and what Jesus has done. So I pray that you'll gain a new vigilance with regard to guarding the gospel and giving the gospel. And if you're here this morning, and you've never known the good news of the gospel in its simplicity, I trust you do now. It's that Jesus Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. By his perfect life and his paying the penalty for your sin on the cross. And here's what's required for you to go to heaven. You receive what Jesus has done. You don't work, you can't. You believe the work that he did for you. And so here's what you do. You realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Repent. Repent means, Lord, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to follow you. And you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Bow before him as your Lord. We're going to bow in prayer. Christian friend, praise Jesus for the goodness of the gospel, the purity of the gospel. And for the individual here who's never come to Jesus, now, right now, is the time for you to do that. Right now. We're going to bow. I'm going to lead in prayer. And you pray from your heart to God. Lord, I need you. In simplicity like that thief on the cross, Lord, I believe you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. You had no sin of your own. And I ask you to count your righteousness to me. Forgive me. So that I can be where you are. And I give my life to you. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this blessed reminder. Of the beauty of the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder for me. As your under-shepherd that I must be vigilant at all times to preach and to guard the purity of the gospel. There are indeed enemies of the cross. There are indeed those who are perverting, continue to pervert. They did in Paul's day. They do in our day. And they go by different names, but they all have the same M.O. It's faith plus. It's grace plus. It's Christ plus. We're so thankful to you that we need nothing but Jesus, that Jesus has paid it all, and that our lives indeed are, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus has washed it completely past, present, future, white as snow. Thank you, Lord. And thank you for applying that to Ken Brown. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it, but you've applied that sacrificial payment for our sin to so many in this room who have come to you believing who Jesus is and what he did. Thank you for the difference it's made. Help us to be ever vigilant about that good news. And Lord, I pray that there are some who are coming to the Savior right now so that if they were to die today, this day they would be with Jesus in paradise. May you be glorified as we continue to preach your gospel, live the implications of your gospel, and guard your gospel. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.